Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm looking at Isaiah 4031. If you don't know that verse, please start memorizing it because it's fantastic. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Ah, I love that verse. All right, we're going to have a great show. Rob Lou is going to be up in just a second. And I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Dr. Rebecca Ree, who is my favorite Hebrew scholar, is going to be uh, joining me and giving her her latest blog, which I always look forward to. And then we're going to talk with Dr. Greg Borgon in hour two. We're going to talk about Ezra and Nehemiah. So it's going to be a great, uh, great day. Looking forward to it. Uh, Rob Louie is the executive editor of the Daily Signal, and he gets to be uh, my daily guest on Tuesdays. And I look forward to it every week. Rob, welcome. It's great to be back, Bill. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, we uh, are opening up slowly, but uh, Iceland reopened uh, with its economic freedom largely intact. That's pretty cool. Yes. Well, you know, this, uh, this is one thing with COVID-19. We are, we are certainly learning as we go. And it's one of the challenging things about this particular virus. Uh, some of the decisions that were made early on to shut down uh, large parts of our country, uh, you know, certainly had an impact, a huge impact on the livelihoods and the lives of so many Americans. And I think if we can look to other countries and see how they have responded, it'll be a, put ourselves in a better position uh, the virus hasn't gone away, and so we find ourselves in a situation where we very well uh, might be dealing with this until we have a virus in place. Now, uh, did, excuse me, a vaccine, a vaccine. In place. And I did hear possibly end of 2020 or early 2021. That's pretty good. That's what they say. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things where it's unpredictable. We don't have a definitive time on it. Uh, but, you know, I think the uh, the situation at hand is, is one in which we, uh, we, we need to... I'll be praying uh, because there's a number of things that a vaccine can do uh, that contact tracing and social distancing can't. I think that a vaccine is is our best opportunity to to be able to really restore and, and have, give the American people the confidence they need uh, to resume life. It's going to be a new normal, Bill. We yeah. keep talking about the new normal, but uh, but certainly they'll be in a better position uh, and we won't have, find ourselves uh, in a situation where some of us are, I think, are really still scared, and particularly those who are, are older, uh, maybe have some pre-existing health conditions, uh, you know, they, they don't necessarily um, uh, put, find themselves in a situation where they can return to the workforce, and, mm-hmm. and that's difficult. Yeah. Rob, have you had a COVID test? I have not. Yeah. Do you know many people who have had the test? I know some. Uh, I know a couple of people okay. uh, who have who have done both the COVID test, and I know people who've done the antibody test. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> in some cases, it doesn't sound like it's a, a pleasant experience. Although right. I think some of the newer tests are are certainly better and uh, and a little bit easier to use than uh, than than the early uh, ones. But yeah, it's uh, you know, look, testing has be, become very widespread. Uh, there, if you need to get tested, uh, I think. Uh, you probably are able to find a, a place to do that. And of course, this is a big controversy now based on the president's remarks from this weekend about uh, the, the fact that we have more cases in this country as a result of doing more tests. Mm-hmm. And I'm always curious about herd immunity. I had breakfast this morning with a friend of mine whose son plays college football and a very 
famous college football team, I won't name it, but uh, when they showed up for training, 28 players tested positive, and not one of them had any symptoms. Hmm. Yeah. They were all healthy, well, strong, strapping guys, but they had it. Look, uh, it's uh, it's one of those things that's that's the uh, a factor that I what they say a quarter or or about a quarter of the people who have uh, COVID nineteen have these asymptomatic right. uh, you know situations where they they don't necessarily demonstrate. So uh, this is one of the things that's most challenging with young children and and schools and what decisions are our public schools public schools in particular make in in the fall uh, because if schools don't go back to, uh, you know, into session, we, we could find ourselves in a situation where it's going to be difficult to restart other professions. For instance, if a mom or dad has a kid in public school and the school is closed, well, they're going to have to stay at home with their, with their kids and they can't go into the office and probably fully do their job. So, uh, this is why, again, I think it's so important to be using this time now. Uh, we know that the, the, the virus isn't necessarily as, uh, as dangerous in the summer because of the heat and the sunlight. Mm -hmm. Um, so now is the time we need to be preparing for what we might face in the fall and the winter months. Did the coronavirus commission have sort of of a final observation about the lockdown. Yes. Uh, well, we, we think that uh, there were many decisions that were made early on that should have been uh, decisions made at a local level that okay. maybe sometimes were made at a state level. Uh, so many of our states are, are uh, different uh, with big cities, uh, rural areas, uh, the suburbs, and all of those areas need to be treated uh, individually and not as one collective unit. Um, my home state, uh, where, where I was born, uh, New York, is a classic example of this. You have you know several big cities in upstate. New York, but certainly nothing uh, that compares to New York City. But yet a lot of the decisions that were being made in New York were driven by what was going on in New York City. Uh, and I think you you starting to see the governors are realizing this. This was a big focus of the commission's work, which was to have targeted and temporary decisions being made. So, for instance, Bill, uh, you might uh, have have a, a certain uh, geographic area that has an outbreak that you would want to isolate and and maybe have uh, you know more restrictions in place. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean you have to do it throughout the entire state. And I think that that's uh, that's one of the areas. I think another big one that we saw some really positive response to was our call to reopen uh, the medical offices. Uh, you know, whether it was people who were, were uh, unable to get cancer treatments, and we know that cancer treatments went down significantly, uh, just to your dental cleanings, uh, those all, all have an impact on our health. And so, yes, they might not have been suffering from COVID-19, but there were other consequences. And so we're very grateful that many uh, doctor's offices in many states have reopened as a result of uh, our calls to do so. Mm -hmm. Over at the Daily Signal, and you can always go to dailysignal.com, you've got a couple of very smart doctors, Drs. Price and Gray, talking about uh, the media might be uh, kind of itching for a second wave of COVID-19. Uh, say more about that. I certainly hope not, but yes, it does seem it does it does seem that there are some in the media who um, who might be might be rooting for it, and uh, and that's unfortunate. Uh, at the same time, you know, the the Washington Post, uh, the newspaper that uh, that I subscribe to, for months was running on its front page uh, a daily daily tracker of the number of COVID nineteen deaths. And, uh, and I didn't particularly like it, Bill, because I, I thought that uh, it was, you know, really emphasizing, a, a, you know, a very negative and grim statistic. But interestingly, the Washington Post decided to remove it this weekend, as we've now had some of the lowest number of, of, of deaths in our country. So uh, I think that, uh, you know, it's one of those things where 
the, the media will, will latch onto these narratives. There, there's a pack mentality in journalism today that I, I, I find deeply problematic. And as a result of that, uh, certainly it influences public opinion in the way that the American people um, think and act on certain issues. Mm-hmm. I read recently that the expectation from some of the uh, the spring breaks and the openings and the gatherings and the protests that would normally have uh, caused new cases and a crushing impact on the hospitals they have not seen, which is, yeah. you know, good and bad news. Well, uh, that's that's right. I mean, I, one of the, the good news is that as a result of the slow the spread campaign that President Trump and Vice President Pence uh, had put so much uh, emphasis on in, in March and April, uh, we were able to get more personal protective equipment. Our hospitals and, and medical offices were able to to be in a better position to respond. Uh, many, in many cases, uh, states did did not exceed uh, the, the hospital capacity. I mean, you even saw in New York City, right? There were Samaritan's Purse put up that that hospital right there in Central Park, uh, which I don't even think had to really be utilized much uh, no. because uh, the, the demand wasn't there. But uh, but yes, we need to be in a position where we are prepared for this, uh, particularly, Bill, if we're if we're finding ourselves in a situation where we have a COVID-19 outbreak at the same time as the regular flu season. And uh, and, you know, that's that's really hard to predict at this early stage. But uh, I think it just goes to show some of the the challenges that are going to uh, confront us in the future. And Rob, I heard a glimmer of hope that baseball might return. It seems that way, Bill. Uh, you know, it seems that the owners and the union can't really come to an agreement, uh, with, which I think is unfortunate. Uh, but uh, it, it, through at the end of it, uh, the commissioners made a decision, a uh, 60-game season, uh, which is significantly shorter than what a, what a normal season mm-hmm. is. But uh, I'll take any baseball, frankly, oh, as both. long as it can be done safely. I mean, I think that this is, again, a challenge. You know, we're going to be in a situation where that first positive test is probably going to cause a lot of panic. And so, um, you know, how we all respond to that, I think, is is really important. And you already saw the sports world react pretty aggressively at the end of last week um, when when some spring training facilities were shut down as a result of positive tests. So, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a challenge uh, if they attempt to do it. And I think all sports are going to be in that same boat. Mm-hmm. Rob, let me take a little break and then we'll come back. Uh, Rob Louie is my guest. He is the executive editor of The Daily Signal. You can always head over to dailysignal.com. We'll take a short break and be right back. And that's the walk-up music for Rob Bluey, the executive editor of The Daily Signal. always love talking to Rob on Tuesdays. I'm glad he's with me today. All right, Rob, let's talk about some of the uh, some of the vandalism that's going on in our country and how come there is not more arrests i think san francisco said that they haven't really arrested anybody it's really disturbing bill and i think the american people are starting to really get fed up with it i know personally i I am questioning why i was was uh alarmed to see last night around eight o'clock that uh, there were people trying to pull down the andrew jackson statue outside of the white house and and police fortunately rushed in to uh, to stop that, uh, I, I I don't yet know if they've made any arrests in in that situation. But in many cases, you have video evidence of uh, these individuals who are doing it. I know sometimes they wear masks and uh, and you know in a large mob of people maybe can escape. But 
Uh, I think that uh, it's that's a bad example that if you let them get away with it, there will be other copycat incidents like it. And so uh, we need our law enforcement to to do this. We need our mayors and local leaders uh, to take control. And uh, as you saw in Seattle, uh, you know, it took about two weeks before uh, the the political leaders there uh, exerted the, the the will and determination um, to to put an end to to Chaz or Chop or whatever you is, want to call the Chop autonomous over? zone. Is chop over? Uh, not, no, not yet. But th- there's there's early talks that uh, that that the that they will be uh, relinquishing the the land that they've seized there on Capitol <laughs> Hill District in in Seattle, and uh, and but it shouldn't have taken that long. Is my point? I get uh, it. You know that, that that is they attempted to do this last night in Washington, uh, where they uh, defaced uh, uh, St. John's Episcopal Church uh, right there across from the White House um, with with you know a, a slogan right on the the pillars. And it's uh, it's disgusting that they would attack a church like that. Um, and uh, and you've seen other uh, Black Lives Matter leaders speak out and uh, talk about uh, smashing stained glass windows and removing all depictions of, of uh, Jesus as a, as a white person. Uh, and and I just wonder, where is it going to end? Um, and I, I think we know that there is a point where some of these radicals will will never be satisfied. Right. Um, it's it's deeply disturbing. Do you know what chop uh, bargained for? They just didn't dis- just decide to break up because somebody asked them to. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, I, I don't I don't know if I have an answer for you on that one. I mean, it always seemed like they, they're coming to them saying, Luca, we need you to disband. And they probably would have said, well, we, we need something for us to do that, which I think is crazy anyway. They should have it, never it been allowed to do what they did. Yeah, no, it, it certainly is. It, it, it definitely is. And, and I don't know exactly... Um, you know what the situation. Is. First of all, I don't understand how the situation ever got to be what it was, and then why you wouldn't immediately try to to stop it. Uh, you don't want to be in a position where you're negotiating with with individuals um, who are are holding hostage a section of your city. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, that's that's where we found ourselves, and so that's why I think a a robust and forceful response is is what is needed, and uh, and certainly law enforcement have a, a big role to play, but. But the local political leaders are the ones who can, you know, obviously have an impact there, too. Mm -hmm. Now, Rob, we value uh, fairness in the world of athletics. What about girls sports? Well, it's a you know a big issue right now, Bill, because last week's Supreme Court decision, which uh, which we talked about, the Bostock case, which um, which changed the meaning of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, has a lot of uh, female athletes, uh, particularly those uh, who uh, have Christian beliefs or conservative beliefs, worried that this is the end of women's sports, uh, whether it be uh, for for high school or or, or youth or or even uh, you know things that in the Olympics. I think that there's deep concern that uh, the transgender individuals will use this as an opportunity to redefine uh, what it means um, to, to be uh, an athlete in these competitions. We've already had examples of this happening already, and the court's uh, not stepping in uh, to, to, to stop it. Um, groups like uh, Alliance Defending Freedom uh, and others have you know, waged a, a, a legal campaign, and it's, uh, it's, it's concerning. I, I don't know, uh, Bill. Ultimately, what it what it will mean. I know that there are those on the other side who say that we're exaggerating by making these claims, but I think based on what we've already seen in our culture, uh, it's not uh, an exaggeration, and we can see the slippery slope right before, right in front of us. Yeah, that gets to be very uh, scary. What other uh, decisions have you heard that have come out of the Supreme Court? 
Well, the big one on Thursday was uh, on the issue of of uh, DACA, the, uh, mm-hmm. the the Dreamers, the the, um, the children of illegal immigrants. That President uh, Obama unconstitutionally uh, granted um, uh, the ability to stay in our country. Uh, the Trump administration moved quickly to end this program, and the court said they didn't follow the proper procedure for doing so. Uh, the court didn't actually rule on the merits of the program, which is something that. You know, I think is uh, is a move that we've seen increasingly uh, by this John Roberts court is they'll they'll find a technicality and rather than answer the tough question, they'll they'll decide the case on a technicality. Uh, that's not necessarily, I think, what the American people want or expect. Uh, this was a decision that we uh, we disagreed with uh, at the Heritage Foundation and. And I think that, uh, you know, there are ways that we can address the immigration issue in our country, but that should happen from our legislature, not uh, from the bench. And in both of these cases that we're talking about last week, it was too much legislating going on at the court uh, and not enough uh, action uh, on the part of Congress. And, and we need to get back in a position where we're doing that. Uh, we've got a number of other Supreme Court cases that could be decided either later this week or, or next week. And, uh, and you better believe we're going to be keeping a close eye on them based on the surprising rulings that we've seen so far. Yeah. The, the abortion one's coming up. Uh, is that next week? That's what we think. Okay. Uh, the, the, the Supreme Court usually will make its rulings uh, either on a Monday or a Thursday. That's what they did last week. So, um, so yes, uh, and the last day of the term is usually when you get some of the biggest uh, decisions. Mm-hmm. So I, I think maybe next Tuesday we'll have a, a lot to cover in our interview. Mm-hmm. What are you thinking about the uh, campaign rally that happened last weekend? Uh, what did you think that was a, a wise move? Do you think it was... Uh dangerous to do what uh, the the Trump campaign did or what are your thoughts on that, Rob? Well, certainly the the people who chose to to turn out for that rally, just like those people who who are are you know choosing to you know reenter society and and uh, and, and do things, uh, you know there there are always going to be risks associated with uh, with things that that happen. Mm-hmm. But we um, you know we we can't necessarily stop living our lives as a result of that. So I don't fault the Trump administration for holding the rally. I think that the the safety measures they put in place were were quite robust. And uh, and and those individuals weren't forced to go. I mean, they made the choice to to be there. Uh, as for the content, uh, of course, President Trump, uh, you know, as as he likes to do in these rallies, uh, entertained uh, mm-hmm. for a couple of hours. Um, you know, the media tended to seize on a couple of comments that he made during the course of that speech on uh, on coronavirus and testing. Uh, and uh, and of course the fact that they uh, the, the arena wasn't full, um, you know, it's like yeah. the guy the guy can't win. You've got a full arena, and then he would have been jeopardizing everybody's safety by packing them in. And the arena is not full, and uh, it, it's uh, you know an, another uh, another excuse. But uh, regardless of what it is, I think that this president is is eager to get back to to on the campaign trail, and I think the American people are. are probably looking forward to a robust debate between the candidates this fall. And uh, to the extent that we can have that uh, with the situation we find ourselves in, uh, it should be a contrasting vision of what direction we go uh, to uh, with, uh, with our country. Yeah. Do you, do you hear anything about uh, Vice President Biden uh, having any planned rallies? Do you hear anything about that? 
Not yet. Yeah, um, I mean, there, there are some. Uh, there are certainly some events that that are happening, but uh, but nothing on the the grandiose scale of a, of a rally. Um, and I, I think that look, the vice president has has certainly uh, optically taking a, taken a different approach. I mean, he is uh, seen in public with wearing a mask. Uh, president Trump uh, has has pointedly said that he's not going to do that. Uh, he doesn't feel that uh, you know he he's in danger. Uh, he has worn the mask, I think, when he's gone on some of these tours to to different facilities. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, in public, uh, I think he he definitely has a preference for for doing it differently. Rob, I have not followed this at all, so I'm just going to ask you. There seems to be an awful lot of bad blood between uh, the Trump and John Bolton. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's to say the least. <laughs> uh, not not just Trump, but I'm seeing a lot of people. Mike Pompeo coming out uh, with uh, you know a strong uh, message uh, in, uh, in in numerous uh, appearances. Mike Pompeo saying, "Look, I." He, taking a page from Bolton or the cover from Bolton's book saying I was actually in the room. Uh, you know, that is a situation where, um, where he is, uh, he's pushing back both Trump and, and other members of the administration saying these things did not happen uh, that Bolton says uh, were in the book. Uh, but Bill, you know, uh, I wasn't in the room either. So it's hard for me right. to determine. And I think it's, <laughs> this is one of those issues where the American people are going to have to look at the facts, um, look in, uh, use their best uh, determination, review multiple sources and, and attempt to, uh, to come up with, uh, with, with something that they view as, um, as credible in their eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I think it's, uh, this is one of those issues where, uh, you know, whenever somebody writes one of these tell-all books, um, you, you always, I think, have to be somewhat uh, skeptical, but at the same time, um, you know, be discerning. Uh, the media certainly is jumping all over it. Mm-hmm. Rob, um, how would China be held uh, accountable for the coronavirus pandemic? Well, it's it's one of those issues where um, we, they need to be held accountable first and foremost, yeah, and the I fact that they that. were not they weren't transparent with uh, with. Uh, what they knew early on, we lost some critical weeks at the beginning when we could have suspended travel much earlier mm-hmm. and maybe not. Look, this wasn't just an issue for the United States here either. I mean, remember, it was uh, the Chinese who were traveling to places like Italy and, and Europe um, where the disease spread quite rapidly, um, largely among an, uh, an older population. Um, so, yes, there there certainly could have been steps that China took earlier. And I think now, as you're seeing uh, Beijing uh, put in place some, some new restrictions, uh, we still aren't getting the full story about what's going on in China. It's, mm-hmm. it's really, uh, really disturbing that the Chinese don't have, have not learned their lesson after uh, the, the first wave went through. Right. And I saw a price tag of the coronavirus probably costing $7 trillion. That's just stunning. Yeah, it's, it is. I mean, the economic impact, uh, the cost of people's livelihoods, uh, and then sadly, those who, who've lost their life or are still struggling right. with recovering from it. Uh, and look, we can't forget about those people who, um, you know, had a severe case and, uh, and, and find themselves in a situation where it, it will take quite a long time probably for get them to get back to normal. So our prayers go out to them. But it's one of those things where uh, it's had dramatic economic impacts, but uh, there are a lot of good stories coming out of it, too. People who are are rediscovering new careers, new new ways of doing things, uh, families that have been able to spend a lot more time together, like mine. <laughs> um, right. You know that uh, that I'm I'm really blessed for the the opportunity to uh, to work from my um, my home office and, and get to see my my three kids much more often than I, I would have if we were in, our, in if they were in school and I was at work. Yeah, Rob, thank you so much for joining me. I always look forward to uh, hearing from you. It's great to be with you again, Bill. Thanks thank so much. You. Yep, Rob Blue has been my guest, executive director of the Daily Signal. Head over to dailysignal.com.
Take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Rebecca Ree will be joining me. We're looking forward to that. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'm awfully glad whenever I get a chance to have Dr. Rebecca Ree on. She did uh, her undergraduate at Yale. She studied uh, Shakespeare, Greek philosophy, and drama. She did it all. Then she went got her PhD in he- Hebrew uh, in religious literature at Boston University. I- I'm so impressed with her resume, but more so I'm impressed with her as a follower of Jesus and uh, a great uh, writer and communicator. And whenever she comes on, she usually talks about her latest uh, entry in her blog. And if you have never signed up to be on her blog, I really encourage you to do it. You can go to RebeccaRee.net and subscribe, and you'll get it in your email box, and you'll be glad you did. Rebecca, welcome back to the show. It is my delight to be here. How did I do on your introduction? I botch it? (laughs) You did just fine. Well, I'm glad to have you back, and uh, happy summertime. I don't know what your world has changed, how it's changed now that it's summer. Um, well, it's it's hard to say how it's changed because it's been in flux every day, and, and now instead of worrying about regular school, we're worrying about summer school. Yeah. So I'd say that's the biggest thing. Yeah, and just re- remind our listeners again, when you say you're worried about summer school, what that involves. Yeah, so um, a, a lot of the times that I write um, about struggle and growth in our lives is, Uh, through the lens of being a parent of a child. He's nearly eight years old who is on the autism spectrum. So um, uh, getting him a a good and nourishing and uh, developmentally appropriate education is one of the greatest uh, uh, challenges and priorities in our life. All right. And your um, blog is wonderful. I always love it. I always learn something from it. And I would love for you to uh, talk about your most recent entry. Okay, so the most recent post I put on there was called <clears throat> The Nest, The Nest. And uh, the story I want to tell you today is about a bird's nest that I saw while I was in the midst of a terrible struggle and uh, how that bird's nest spoke to me. So as I said before, as the mother of a nearly eight-year-old son with autism, the longer we stay on lockdown, um, the more difficulty he has just getting through the day because kids with autism so often rely on routine and structure and services they get. And when all those things disappear, they just start spiraling out. And it's also very difficult um, for the parents because even though there may be remote learning opportunities, that's not something that their children can actually take advantage of. So um, it's just an all around very, very difficult time for people with autism and people with special needs in, in, uh, in general. So um, my son's been having uh, difficulty with these, uh, his, what, what his day looks like and how he walks through it. But recently, um, in, in addition to these daytime behaviors, my son has also been spiraling um, out at night, which means he's been often waking up at like 2.30 in the morning and staying up for the rest of the day. Oh boy. And his his behavior, he's, he's very rambunctious when he does this and... Um, he needs to be definitely supervised because there's no way I can just plunk him in front of the TV and have him watch a Disney movie or something like that. 
he needs to be closely supervised because of the crazy things he can do in the night that might be a danger to himself or destroy the house. <laughs> so this is our terrible struggle right now, and this is what the bird's nest that I saw um, was speaking to. Um, and so as my husband and I um, grapple with this issue of sleeplessness, which is, you know, if, if anybody out there has ever struggled with insomnia or, or some kind of condition where they can't get, get to sleep, um, it becomes um, pretty ugly pretty fast. And um, everything becomes overwhelming. And it's an urgent uh, situation that you need to, to uh, address. And um, personally, the result of all this insomnia, insomnia and sleeplessness is that my own mental health really starts to suffer. So just to sort of give you some context here, uh, most days or many days I walk around feeling pretty um, imbalanced and dysfunctional anyway. <laughs> like I usually do with the comparison game and I, I feel like everyone has it more together than I do. I often feel like, oh, that person's so composed. What's wrong with me? Um, but if you take away my sleep, then suddenly I'm questioning God's goodness. I'm questioning whether there's any real purpose to my life, whether my son has any chance at a fruitful life or where my husband and I went wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Everything just kind of as I've been using that word, spirals out of control. So, you know, my, my usual insecurities sort of balloon in, a, in an exponential way when I haven't had any sleep. So it almost feels like my psyche has become like a spider's web made of glass. And the next thing that flies past is going to totally shatter it. Mm. And um, I was wondering just whether some of your listeners, Bill, who have been experiencing unrest of any kind and Right now, you know, you just turn on the TV and there's all kinds of reason to be experiencing unrest um, out there right now. Um, if any of them can relate to that glass web that's about to shatter, or maybe you feel like you've already shattered. And if that's true, I just want you to hang in there until the end of this story, because there's some biblical truths that I want to kind of uh, bring out that maybe bring some strength and comfort to you. I love it. So um, let's go back to the bird's nest. Okay. So although my husband and I were like just dead tired from, you know, this crazy being up with my uh, son at night, um, we decided to take him for a walk around Yale. We live in uh, Connecticut and Yale's in New Haven. And we both of us went to school there. That's where we met, in fact. And so we decided we would take him for a walk around there. And this was three weeks ago. So the campus was like literally bursting with a beautiful spring growth. I mean, there were flowers coming up everywhere. There were buds on the trees. It was just gorgeous. But in stark contrast, there was nobody else walking around hardly besides us, either, you know, as a visitor or a student or faculty. And, you know, Yale's kind of an international entity. There's always a stream of visitors coming through uh, Yale campus. And this is a really um, odd sort of occurrence for us to be in this context and, and just sort of being alone on campus. And again, the stark contrast between, you know, the explosive growth going on around us and yet the emptiness at the same time. And it was just one more reminder that, you know, we live in a different world since COVID has struck. Um, so, you know, as we were enjoying this gorgeous scenery all around us and at the same time, it was kind of easier to maneuver my son around because it was empty because he, he doesn't do well in large crowds. So on the one hand, we were appreciating that fact, but 
there was no denying that Yale felt kind of um, eerie. You know, this emptiness felt kind of eerie and almost disturbing. Um, there was just no escaping that fact. So um, there was this just weird contrast between what we were seeing and, and what we were experiencing um, emotionally about it. And so right when it was time to go, we were getting inside the car, and my husband points and says, look at the bird's nest. And so I follow his point, and I see that there's this gorgeous tree blossoming with these, like a riot of pink blossoms. And I see that nestled right on, you know, in, in amongst the branches is this little brown cup. And it's perched right in the center, and it's clearly visible from the sidewalk where we were standing. And immediately I had two opposite reactions inside of myself. And the first one was sort of this gladness for the new life. You know, whenever you see new life, um, whether it's a newborn baby or you're going and seeing a, um, like a new growth in a, gar a, a garden, like a, a sprout or something happening in a garden, there's generally, you know, a sense of celebration and happiness when we see a new life uh, burgeoning. And so I sort of felt that first. But then the second reaction that I had was you know, far less pleasant and, and far less rational. And um, inside of my head, I could hear myself screaming at the mother bird. And what, was, what I was saying was, what are you, nuts? <laughs> why, why would you risk having your babies here of all places? It's so barren and you stick out like a, a sore thumb. It is so not safe for you to be here. Why would you build your nest here of all places? Now, I know that my husband and I were really sleep deprived. And I know these, are, you know, this is an extraordinarily unusual and challenging time. Um, but in general, as a, as a rule of thumb, when you find yourself internally screaming at wildlife, <laughs> I think that it, it, it's a good idea to take just a wee little break and, you know, pause and, and, and give yourself a chance to figure out what, what maybe is going on here. Um, I know that, you know, in, in Catholic tradition, St. Francis of Assisi used to preach to the birds. Uh, but in my case, I felt like uh, this was more um, imbalanced, something imbalanced was going on. So I spent some time thinking about it. And um, what I came to with this was um, right now during this pandemic, we are not only uh, confronting the truth of our mortality, but also the truth of our fragility. And I'll, I'll say that again. We're, we're not only confronting the truth of our mortality, but the truth of our fragility. And what do I mean by that? So what I mean is, even if we don't die from this terrible illness that, you know, is just sort of this pernicious and, and evil agent that we, we you know, we, this en enemy, we've never quite faced one like this enemy. Um, life as we know it has co collapsed like a deck of cards, a house of cards, and we can't quite reconstruct it like we want to. We, we don't go where we want to anymore. We don't um, do what we want to anymore. We can't just get what we want anymore. Um, there are a lot of questions about the future, our immediate, immediate future, our long-term future that we don't have answers for right now. And so we know that God is supposed to bring good from even the worst of circumstances, but these particular circumstances are so 
um, long, um, long lived and so relentless that we're left seriously doubting um, what God's going to do and how that's going to impact us. So I would say, you know, in some, uh, we see as never before that um, our sense of control over our lives is really an illusion. And um, we don't know how reliably or how benevolently benevolently God is going to wield his control when it comes to what we want or need. I mean, it just comes down to that. We have that that conflict. Yeah, that's a great, great point, Rebecca. I might ask you to pause there if you don't mind. Sure. I was thinking uh, right before we go to break, uh, right after yelling at birds is yelling at inanimate objects. So when you're yelling at a chair, then you're really gone. <laughs> That's where I'm headed next. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Rebecca Reed is my guest. RebeccaReed.net, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-H-E-E.net. We'll take a short break and be right back. So glad to have Dr. Rebecca Ree as my guest. We are uh, talking about her latest blog. And if you've not subscribed to her blog, I recommend you do it. Go to RebeccaRee.net. We're talking about the nest. And uh, I love what we're going through, talking about fragility of life. Yep. So um, I'll be honest with you. Um, the way I struggle with the truth of my fragility um, is much the same way that I struggle with, the, with my son's insomnia, which is I, uh, I treat it as something I desperately want to get rid of. I desperately want to rid myself of this thing in my life so that I can be okay. Now, what do I mean by okay? Everybody's got their own definition of being okay. And for me, I think actually for most human beings, being okay has um, more associations of being strong than being weak. So I'll I'll give you a few small examples from my own life. Like, um, I don't like taking naps. I don't like um, allowing myself to take a nap, even no matter how legitimately tired I may be. I just feel like for myself, that's weakness. That's an indulgence. Um, I often tend to set goals that are too high. And then when I don't reach them, I give myself very little grace about it. Um, I'm very hard on myself when I make a parenting mistake. Or um, I find that I'm more and more uncomfortable with the changes that my body is going through as I get older. I'm, I'm almost 50 now, but I kind of expect myself to, to act the same ways when I was in my 20s. Um, and then I'm also impatient with myself over my sensory uh, sensitivities. And by that, by that, I mean how I react to light, how I react to sound. And during these times, especially when I'm sleep deprived, I often feel like, you know, everything's too loud, everything's too bright. And I'm kind of impatient and um, exasperated with myself about that. So, um, I feel like, and again, I've said this before, I'm often comparing myself to others and feeling like I come up short. I'm so fragile and pathetic compared to other people. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm guessing that many of the listeners out there can relate to what I'm saying, that, you know, there may be aspects of your own fragility, be they emotional or physical or spiritual, that you struggle with too. Like you really have an internal conflict over these things, and it plays out in all kinds of ways in your daily life and steals your peace. So here's the problem. So I went to the Bible, and here's where the biblical truth comes in that hopefully will give us some strength and perspective, which is when I went to the scriptures, 
I could not find any support for rejecting or despising our fragility. Mm. I really, I couldn't find it. And in fact, what I found was quite the opposite. Um, so I'll give you some examples. When Jesus taught the multitudes, he put fragile things in a positive light. So in the Sermon on the Mount, um, that's probably one of the most famous, um, birds and flowers appear as objects of God's tender care. You know, not a sparrow falls. Or, you know, Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as fine as one of these flowers, right? Um, and it's the meek and not the strong that are blessed as inheritors of the earth. And on multiple occasions, Jesus um, likens his beloved followers to sheep. And sheep are fragile animals. They're vulnerable. They're especially in need of safekeeping. And if you go a little further into the New Testament, for his part, the Apostle Paul goes so far as to boast about his fragility. He calls it weakness. He boasts in his fragility because it serves as a conduit for God's power. And then most dramatically, um, after Paul, is that when Jesus was speaking to his disciples about the death by which he would save humankind, he described that death as a demonstration of fragility, not a manifestation of might. Let me say that again. He described his redemptive death as a de demonstration of fragility, not a manifestation of might. He said, this is my, parentheses, fragile body broken for you. Wow. One might even argue that the whole narrative of the incarnation from Jesus's birth to Jesus's death plays out in scripture as an exploration of God's handling of human fragility, how God uses these fragile earthen vessels to pour out heavenly blessing, the most awesome blessing being his very presence amongst us. So again, what I found in scripture was like the polar opposite of the contempt in which I've been holding my myself, you know, my own fragility, the contempt that I've been feeling. So um, if I might, if I may, next time we are tempted to deal with ourselves, deal harshly with ourselves for being fragile, um, maybe we can try a few small things, because I, I always encourage people on my, on my blog to, to do things in small steps. So um, if I may, I think um, I'll offer you a, a few practical things. And um, the first is to remember that God appears to have built fragility into the very fabric of creation, that there seems to be a high and holy purpose that fragility accomplishes, even if we cannot always discern that purpose in the moment. And um, my guess is that some of our best contributions to the world come through fragile and sensitive parts of ourselves. So like an example might be maybe you're really sensitive to sound, but that makes you a great musician or maybe you have a really fragile heart, but that gives you great compassion for others. Or um, maybe, you know, in terms of your own personal benefit, having a fragile self may make you more sensitive to the movement of God's Holy Spirit. So, um, again, let us um, just sort of acknowledge that God wove fragility into the fabric of creation, and we need to start viewing it from his point of view. Um, and then the second thing that we can do is submit our fragility to God rather than despising ourselves for it and working hard to eradicate it. 
um, I was having, I was struggling over something a, a years back that had to do with my own fragility. And a friend said to me, why do you despise your fragility? She said, some of the world's most beautiful and valuable things are fragile. She said, think of a Stradivarius violin. She said, think of a rose. Um, you know, she said, don't despise your fragility. Um, things, you know, it, 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 it speaks of value. It speaks of beauty. Um, so, you know, in practical terms, let's take a nap if we need to. Let's attempt baby steps rather than giant leaps. Let's cut ourselves some slack because no one in your life is better positioned to show yourself kindness um, than you are. And that kindness and that respect for your fragility um, is going to prove more fruitful in the end than any slave driving approach that you may try. Um, and then a third thing we can do is to accept this divine invitation, which seems to be aimed at those who feel their fragility most keenly. And it, 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 um, it goes like this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Beautiful, beautiful invitation if we're feeling fragile. Oh. And if I can sneak in a fourth one. Please. <laughs> um, I would say stay on the lookout for some signs like that bird's nest. That, you know, that with God there there's always hope in desolate places. You know, there we were on a desolate campus. And then before we, we left, God made sure we saw a sign of hope in that little bird's nest. And like that mother bird, we have to build our nest um, and place our fragile selves in an in infinite hands where they belong. Um, so just to look out for those signs and maybe even be willing to be a sign to others that God works through us in our fragility. And um, as we depend on him, something magnificent and very powerful messages that we need to hear of love and hope in a very dark time can shine through us. Uh, it's just wonderful, Rebecca. When I think of the Matthew 11 verse, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When you read that for yourself, what does rest feel like to you? Because it seems like you're always on the edge of another uh, task that needs to be done and mm -hmm. um, another something that has to be executed. Right. And I, mean, I think most chore. of us feel, yes, most of us feel like we're on that hamster wheel and we never yeah. get off. Right. Um, I would say, I think the, the deep and dark and dirty secret of modern life is that most of us, most of us are at war with ourselves within ourselves. We are really battling ourselves for one reason or another. And many of us, if we don't actually outright hate ourselves, often have contempt, have impatience, have little compassion, and we treat ourselves harshly in, in ways that we would never dream of treating other people. But we have this different standard for ourselves. And so I think when Jesus can get us to stop, step outside of ourselves and look um, at ourselves the way that he does. And we can have a moment of peace when we think, I don't need to hate myself there. I don't need to be so harsh there. I should actually, I w in fact, I want to extend myself some kindness there because Jesus 
wants to extend that kindness to me. He wants me to take this rest right now because um, he loves me, and, and that's what his will is for me. When we can have just those little oases of not fighting with ourselves so fiercely, I think that's what rest is. Mm, <laughs> At least that's how I experience it. Yeah, I absolutely love what you've said, because oftentimes in Christian language, we use the opposite. We're, we're prayer warriors, and there's nothing fragile about that. I mean, there's there's sometimes the expressions we use that we don't associate with fragility or or letting God take care of us. Exactly. And I think the real test is, sure, we are called to be those warriors. We are called to stand up and be strong and have a strong voice against injustice and have a strong voice against evil and anything that God um, stands against. But at the same time, our hearts must always remain soft towards him exactly, and soft, soft towards the people he puts in our lives. And that's where the, the God-ordained fragility comes in. Yeah. So it's okay just to say God loves you in all your fragility. Yes. In fact, it's part of his divine image in you. Yeah, that's a wonderful perspective, and I just uh, have loved this time. Together, Rebecca, thank you once again. Dr. Rebecca Ree has been my guest. Her blog is RebeccaRee.net. You can head over there and sign up. It's for free. You just say, I want to get these blogs regularly, and you'll get them, and you'll love them. Rebecca, thank you so much for doing the show again. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yep. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back with more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.